Welcome in to Ins and Outs with Grand Cannon and Graydon Shaw. This is our grand finale to our AFI Top 100 series. It's been a bit of a journey. We've been going 10 films each week throughout this list of supposedly the greatest American films ever made. And now we are finally to what the American Film Institute deems the top 10 greatest films ever made. I don't know if that's accurate, but this is what it is. I mean, it's not very accurate considering how we've discussed multiple times on this uh, podcast that there are definitely films that we could just add and subtract and do all these things yeah. for. Like, I mean, like I have, I wrote, I wrote my own list at home because I'm just like, I, I had nothing to do one day. I'm like, let's do this. Like, sure. I mean, like, I'm really glad we did this. Um, this is the last of this series for now. Mm-hmm. I think we maybe do a top 10 added eventually. Sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll find some sort of, I guess, recap or addendum or some sort of. Yeah. But I think we'll, back. I think we'll, I think we're going to do filmmaker series next. Mm-hmm. I think that's our next season. Yeah. TBD at the moment. Yeah. We're, we'll decide this later. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but now into the top 10 of the AFI top 100. Number 10, a Kansas classic. The Wizard of Oz from 1939. 39 deemed as possibly the greatest year for films in, a, um, in American film history. Uh, directed by Victor Fleming and a uh, group of uncredited uh, yeah. directors and screenwriters. Uh, George Cukor, Mervyn Leroy, Norman Taurog, Richard Thorpe, King Vidor are all uncredited directors and... The screenwriters are just, the list is even longer, but who is credited is Noel, Noel um, Langley, Florence Ryerson, Edgar Allan Wolfe, based on the book by Frank L. Baum. Stars Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger, Burt Lahr, Jack Haley, inducted the National Film Industry in 89, nominated for six Oscars. It won two, obviously, it went against the juggernaut Gone with the Wind, so that kind of took over everything, but it did win. For Best Original Song for Over the Rainbow and Original Score. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Cinematography, Art Direction, and Special Effects. It, again, like I mentioned, is a Kansas staple, kind of one of those films. It's not really a staple of Kansas. It's what people associate with Kansas at this point. It is. And I think it's funny that people still use it at, like, Chiefs games and stuff. You're not in Kansas anymore when that team actually plays in Missouri. Yeah, yeah, people say that and they're just like... You're just an idiot. You yeah. don't understand where yeah. this is. Uneducated. Um, one of its biggest triumphs was it was one of the first ones to use Technicolor. Um, and just a few fun facts I had down here. Richard Thorpe, the film's original director, was fired after two weeks. Over the Rainbow was nearly cut from the film because MGM thought the Kansas scene uh, dragged for too long. It would go over children's heads. Um, studies say this is the most watched film in history. I doubt that was when it Star takes, Wars. When it takes into account, I guess, DVD sales and just rewatchability. But I think Star Wars is probably up there. I mean, as well. I guess, like, this movie's been around for 80 years. 80 years. Like, they, like, they just celebrated its 80th anniversary yeah. last week, didn't they? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So this movie's been around for 80 years. So, I mean, I don't doubt that it's the most watched film of all time. Yeah. But it just seems like it's such a weird thing where we have, like, juggernauts like Star Wars and, like, and Jaws. Like, Jaws and, like, E.T. and Jurassic Park and all yeah. those. They're on the, that. You know, we talk about it as like the greatest films of all time. I think it's just this is a really 
easy entry point for people. Sure. Like, kids can watch this movie. Yeah. It's scary for yeah, kids. Yeah, I was going to say. It's scary for kids, but you can watch it. Yeah. And those those flying monkeys are kind of uh, hard to take as a kid, for sure. Um, Dorothy's red slippers are in the Smithsonian, and the carpet in front of the exhibit has to be cha- has had to be changed numerous times due to wear and tear of people visiting it. Um, AFI named um, Over the Rainbow the number one greatest, the greatest song in film history. It's which, almost iconic. I, I don't think that's much. Yeah. I mean, like, this, this like, I put it on my list, like, this is probably, like, pop culture-wise, this may be number two to Star Wars. Mm. But I think, like, overall, like, if you, like, people talk about this movie all the time. I think this might be number one. I think, like, you could say Star Wars, like, impacted culture, but I think this is, like, everybody knows Wizard of Oz. Sure. I Yeah, I think that it's definitely a cultural touchstone. I think that if we're talking about impacting pop culture, just in general and kind of the takeover of that, I would give the edge to Star Wars. Yeah. Just because of all the merchandise and just the, the effects and how it still has transcended and obviously they're still making movies. Um, Wizard of Oz, though, definitely is a film that is one of those that, not even if you don't live in Kansas, I feel like it's one of those films that a lot of people say you have to see at least once. Yeah, like, like I've seen Dorothy's Slippers. I've been to the American History Museum multiple times, and it's like, it's there. You're like, after a while, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And you keep walking by it. Like, the Ruby Slippers, the Wicked Witch of the West, the Melt, like, the melting, like, there's so many iconic scenes in this movie. I think, like, pop culture-wise, this is, like, one of the most iconic films ever. I will say, I, I will pose a question to you. I hear this film used as one of the greatest films ever made. Again, cultural touchstone, like we mentioned. But I don't hear a lot of people say, this is one of my favorite films. No, I think it's just, like, everybody's seen it. Yeah. Like, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's, like hasn't seen this movie mm-hmm. at least once yeah and I, I know theater kids watch this movie pretty regularly like it's iconic pretty um uh, iconic judy garland performance as well and it's really sad judy garland's just such a sad story yeah they're making a um uh, a biopic with her this year with Zellweger. Renee Zellweger. yeah and she looks exactly like her which is kind of creepy yeah um fun another fun i found a couple of fun facts for okay. this movie uh the poppies the snow from the poppies mm-hmm. was asbestos. Oh, that rained oh down, and the uh, tin man's paint on his face was with tin. It had lead in it. Oh, jeez! And like this film, I mean, you hear horror stories about this film, and they had to make this film, and that there are so many cooks in the kitchen in this movie that like there they shot the Kansas scenes, and he wanted to shoot those in color, and then and all these things. Technicolor was brand new. Mm-hmm. Technicolor was something that was, like, this and Gone with the Wind may have been the first two color movies you ever saw in the theater. Because mm-hmm. this movie, like, a lot of people were introduced to color for, for this movie. Um, there were color films around. I mean, silent films just had cells on them that were red or blue or, or something to show, like, hey, this is this night, this is this day. But this it was kind of just, like, the first where it's, like, everything's the color you think it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're yellow. I mean, I, we can go on and on about this movie, how culturally, culturally important this is. But yeah. I think, I mean, top ten thousand percent. I think sure. it belongs. Yeah, this is a film that um, I believe they showed in elementary school um, for me, and because it is one of those films that I think, like you mentioned, that kids definitely can see and understand and enjoy. Um, just kind of this story of the Tin Man and. Um, and Dorothy and Scarecrow and Lion and just, I guess, 
finding finding a heart, finding a brain, just I guess simple mm. simple things I as they kind of go through this journey, but also kind of the man behind the curtain at the end. It's uh it, it's definitely an interesting film for sure. Uh, I would say that it it holds up for the most part. It holds. I mean, we're t- the fact that we're talking about this eighty years later, I think, super important. Eighty, yeah, eighty years later, because that that's one thing also that uh, with nineteen thirty nine is interesting. That kind of a lot of people do say that it is the greatest film ever made. I know we talked about Mr. Smith goes to Washington earlier. Um, Stagecoach is not on this list, but that's another one that people point to. And then Gone with the Wind, we'll talk a little bit. But no, I think Wizard of Oz definitely fits into that category of kind of what made this landmark year. I guess that it's definitely one that I think everybody should see at some point. I, I think it's a movie that every... It, it's also one thing, like, people know over the somewhere over the rainbow. People know, like, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And, and just a lot of, like, it's one of those films that you can quote even without having seen it. Yeah. So... It's ingrained in pop culture to a point where, like, if you haven't seen the movie, you still know what happens in the movie. Yeah, sure. And even, like, the story itself doesn't even mean as much as far as, like, just the different, I guess, iconic scenes and aspects of it. Yeah. I, like, all in all, it's a good movie. It's not great, great. Like, yeah, it just was kind of like this thing that had never been done before. The special effects were brand new. The fact that, like, we'll get to it later, but Come with the Windworm special effects. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Kind of mind blowing, yeah. Considering how groundbreaking all this was, yeah. But let's get let's move on. All right, uh, Wizard of Oz at number ten. Um, moving on here to number nine, Vertigo from nineteen fifty eight, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, a guy we've talked about a few times uh, on this pod. Um, written by Alec Koppel and Samuel A. Taylor, based on the novel. I'm gonna butcher all these names. Here we go. Dentre Lemortz by Pierre Boileau and Thomas Nar. I don't even know how to say that. No, he can't. Sure. I don't know um, how to say that either. It's... It means um, from the dead in French. Um, stars Jimmy Stewart, Kim Novak, Barbara Bel Geddes. Uh, nominated for just two Oscars um, for art direction and best sound. Best picture that year. Uh, Gigi won, Auntie Mame, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, Separate Tables, The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier. Inducted the National Film Registry in 89. One of the iconic Hitchcock films mm-hmm. um, with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it was the first movie to use computer graphics with the opening title sequence. Uh, this movie was unavailable for three decades because its rights, um, together with four other movies of the same period, were bought by Alfred Hitchcock and left this part of his legacy to his daughter. They've been known for long as the infamous Five Lost Hitchcocks and were re-released in theaters around 84 after an approximately 30-year absence. The others were The Man Who Knew Too Much from 56, Rear Window from 54, Rope from 1948, and The Trouble with Harry from 1955. Um, Alfred Hitchcock was embittered at the critical and commercial failure of this movie in 1958. He blamed this on Jimmy Stewart for looking too old to attract audiences anymore. Hitchcock never worked with Stewart again, previously one of his favorite collaborators. Um, the uncredited second unit cameraman, Erman Roberts, invented the famous vertigo zoom, a zoom out and track in shot, sometimes called the contra zoom or trombone shot to convey the sense of vertigo to the audience. The view down the mission stairwell cost $19,000 for just a couple of seconds of screen time. Um, I also find it funny that uh, Kim Novak's character on her ID says she's from Salina, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, outside of those fun facts. This film is really good. 
You don't like it? It's not my favorite Hitchcock. Well, it's not mine either, but I, I, like, I think The it's fact good. that it's so high, like if we're talking about Hitchcock, this is not the iconic Hitchcock. No. I think Psycho is. Psycho is probably. North, Northwest. Rear Window. Rear Window. But like, I don't think of like Hitchcock and I'm like immediately, Vertigo is the top 10 film. Like, yeah. it's a good movie. Yeah. It's just like, I have a lot of problems with like the age difference between Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. Yeah. That's like the biggest thing. Yeah. Like, Kim Novak's. Kim Novak's early twenty, like early twenty, like twenties, thirties. Stewart's like fifties, sixties. He's yeah. he's definitely you could definitely see it here too. Like I guess like Hitchcock wanted to shoot in black and white so you can tell it as much, but then like the studio made him go, no, you had to shoot in color. So like the set direction, everything just went like he's like we're gonna do a full bore like this, this color palettes. I mean, the iconic shot, the iconic zoom and everything, the dolly zoom where it's like the you. Dolly in and zoom out, and it's all those things are really iconic. I just don't know if this movie deserves to be top ten. I think that well, first of all, I think it's a very good performance from Jimmy Stewart, um, kind of as this retired police detective. But is there a bad performance by Jimmy Stewart on this list? No, I mean exactly. no. Jimmy Stewart's like Jimmy Stewart. No, no, I know. I just wanted to shout him out. Um, Kim Novak's good. Uh, a little predatory. I would say no. He is definitely predatory. Yeah, like, this movie because it's, it's creepy. Well, it's, it's creepy. creepy. Be, it's weird because like Kim Novak's husband in the film basically comes to Jimmy Stewart and is like, "Hey, I think my wife might commit suicide. Like, basically check up on her." And then he's like, "I don't know about that." And then sees her and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'll definitely do it now because she's hot or whatever." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, well, yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's like it's just like the problem with this is is like it's also kind of supernatural with the Carlotta. Yeah, thing. she's like possessed by this woman that commits suicide. A lot of that is. Yeah. Um, I I just the problems I have with this are like the reason this film got so much steam is because it got re released. It was lost. Mm-hmm. Like Rear Window and Rope and all these movies were lost for a long. Like you pointed out, were lost, and then they were found, and then they were re released in theater. They were like they released the original prints in eighty four. And then they did a remaster and re-released them in like early '90s, around like '92, '93, and it just picked up huge steam. The critics were like, "Oh, I love this movie!" Because modern critics liked it so much. That's why I think it's so high on this Mm -hmm. list. Because it's like it was found. It was this huge lost thing. Where it's like I look at this and go, "I like Rope so much better than this movie." A Rear Window. Rear Window. Like I like those movies so much more than this one. I think also Hitchcock takes more chances with those other films as well. I mean, this this definitely is an interesting film. It definitely has its own merits, um, kind of as a, as Jimmy Stewart's character, Scotty, um, deals with agoraphobia and just kind of this detective mystery kind of supernatural thriller thing going on. But also, at the end of the day, his other films are probably more ambitious Probably better executed. But uh, like, when you think of when you think of Hitchcock, of Hitchcock, you think Psycho, you think Rear Window, you think North by Northwest. I don't think of Vertigo. Mm. I think if we're gonna have the iconic director's best film, I think it's Psycho or North by Northwest in this top ten, mm-hmm. not Vertigo. Yeah, I I will say kind of I'm not mad at Hitchcock being in the top ten because he is one of the best we've ever seen. But yeah, no, Vertigo is an interesting choice, and I think that re-release definitely has a huge thing to deal with it. Because it just like it gains so much steam, and it's not like and Hitchcock was ashamed of it. Like it's you said, he was ashamed of this movie. It's just not as good as people think it is. In I don't think. Mm-hmm. Where would you put it on the list? 
I don't know if I would put it on the list, to be really? brutally honest. Okay. Ever had, like Hitchcock's that are on this list, I think I would put above it. Yeah. I think I would put above it. It would probably be fourth of the Hitchcock's on this, yeah. because I think there's four. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, the Psycho, Rear, Rear Window, North by Northwest, and then Vertigo. So yeah. I'd put Vertigo last. Yeah, definitely, those four. I mean, but also, I think we could also just, when we reshuffle this list, when we get to reshuffling this list eventually... I think, like, there's a lot of new directors that I'd rather put on this list ahead of Hitchcock, a fourth Hitchcock. Sure. Or a fifth Spielberg, you know, that sure. kind of thing. I, I see that, yeah. yeah. where it's like, you know, Spike Lee only has one movie on this list. Yeah, that's true. That's so, true. But that's, that's kind of my thing about it. It's like, Hitchcock's an amazing director. I just don't think this is his best work. Yeah, it deserves to be recognized, but maybe not four times. Yeah. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, the Wizard of Oz thing, a shout-out to Cedric Gibbons who was an iconic um, set designer from MGM. I think he worked on over 1,500 films for them. Good God. And uh, he definitely played a huge role in pulling off the uh, set design. He was nominated for an Oscar um, in The Wizard of Oz, a very important person in film history. Anyway, moving on here to number eight, Schindler's List from 1993. Do you want to talk about the biggest tearjerker of all time? Yeah. Um, I will get to that in a second. Um, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Steven Zalian, who has written some uh, very important films. He's writing The Irishman, coming up for Martin Scorsese, um, based on book, the book by Thomas Keneally. Stars Liam Neeson, Ben Kingsley, Ray Fiennes, nominated for 12 Oscars and won seven. Um, this I can name them off for you if you want. I got it right here. All right. Um, not uh, one best picture, best director for Spielberg, um, screenplay, cinematography by uh, the legend Janis Kaminsky, best art direction, film editing, and score for John Williams. Always also nominated Liam Neeson for best actor, Ray Fiennes for supporting actor, costume design, sound, and makeup. Inducted in the National Film Registry in '04. We've mentioned it before, but Spielberg made this in Jurassic Park in the same calendar year. Best picture that year was Schindler's List 1, In the Name of the Father, The Fugitive, The Piano, The Remains of the Day. Fugitive, still probably one of the more surprising best pick noms just for it being kind of a pure action film. It's so good, though. It, it's like I have not seen it. You have not seen The Fugitive? No, oh, my God. I which I is, see, I'm so it's right up my alley. Here. It's right up my it's alley. It's so good. Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford. Um, like we mentioned, shot by Giannis Kaminsky, scored by John Williams. Just legends working with legends. Uh, put a few, I don't know if these are fun facts, but they're facts nonetheless. Um, when survivor Mila Pfefferberg was introduced to Ray Fiennes on the set, she began shaking uncontrollably as he reminded her too much of the real Amon Goth. Gert. Gert. I, yeah, I, you know, pronunciation is not my friend. Um, when Steven Spielberg first showed John Williams a cut of the movie, Williams was so moved he had to take a walk outside for several minutes to collect himself. Upon his return, he told Spielberg he deserved a better composer. Spielberg replied, I know, but they're all dead. <laughs> Which I just think is funny saying that to John Williams. Yeah. Um, the person who places the flower on top of the stones in the closing credit is Liam Neeson and not Steven Spielberg, as some people think. Um, during production, the atmosphere was so grim and depressing that Steven Spielberg asked his friend Robin Williams if he could tell some jokes and do comedy sketches while Spielberg would watch episodes of Seinfeld. Some of Williams' sketches, while played through the speakerphone to the cast and crew, ended up being part of dialogue material for his character in Aladdin the Genie. Um, but... That is definitely the opposite of what this tone is um, for this film. You mentioned it. It is one of the all-time tearjerkers. I did not cry watching this film. 
but I famously have never cried watching a film. I just felt depressed for like a couple days. Yeah, it like, sticks with you. It's one of those films that like, we're talking about how important film is. This is an important film for a different reason than like pop culture. This is important for the impact that's going to have for our generation and future generations. Because we didn't have Holocaust. We don't know Holocaust survivors. We don't know that many of them. There are not that many around anymore. Uh -huh. The fact that this film shows the brutality of the Holocaust and shows what happened is just nuts. Um, also, John Williams' score will make me cry. One of the best scores. Like, there's a famous YouTube video of they played it live. And this woman has the solo with the violin, and she's just, well, I think she's the oboe or whatever, and she's just bawling by the end. And it's just like, you definitely feel that kind of, like, you could tell that this was, this is Spielberg's opus. If we're going to be brutally honest, this is his best made movie. Mm. This is like the one that he definitely cared about the most. Sure. And I think that it shows in how this film's made and that. It looks like footage. It looks like footage from that time period. Yeah, great choice, I think, to shoot it in black and white. I think shooting in color would have made it almost too real. Mm. I think I think shooting in black and white is because you can associate that with what you saw with the Holocaust and photos and going to the museum. It's a hard movie to watch. It really is. But yeah, also being three hours. Um, but it's important. And I, I watched this film in history class in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and like we've mentioned multiple times, watching a film in class is not the most conducive environment, but I think that Schindler's List fits into that category that kind of transcends that. Like, it's such a good film that you, like, I think this is a film that needs to be watched. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about these films need to be watched. This is, like, a film that's, like, required viewing by the time you are 20, you need to watch this movie once. yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, some iconic performances as well. Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. He lost to Tommy Lee Jones this year for The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. And I would say Ray Fiennes deserved the Academy Award. He was incredible. Liam Neeson lost to Tom Hanks for Philadelphia, which that's hard competition. That's super hard competition. Uh, Liam Neeson's best performance? I would argue that this is just across the board. These are some of the like greatest performances. Ben Kingsley is incredible in this movie. I think the only for Ben Kingsley, Gandhi would be the other one. I mean, Gandhi's his most iconic role. Yeah, but I think this is like he's great in this too. He's just so good in this movie. Like everybody in this movie brings their A game. You can tell that they're there and they care. They focus on everything. And I mean, I feel bad for Spielberg. Yeah, because he had to do this and then Jurassic Park. He had yeah. to do Jurassic Park first and then this because he really hated Universal after this. Like yeah. Universal made him like he told Universal, "Hey, I want to make this movie." Universal goes, well, you need to do this movie before you do this movie because we'll give you funding from whatever left over from this. We'll also go into this. And he just is like, okay, I'll do it. And so he's watching cuts of Jurassic Park while shooting like the ghetto scene and, and Chandler's List. I can't imagine that. I don't know how you would compartmentalize that as a director. Um, just two completely, totally different like he films. had, he had his entire like his kids are with him when he got like his, his kids and his wife were hanging back in the hotel room and he would come home and he just wanted to have something like the Robin Williams story. I mean, Adam Sandler called him and told him jokes and stuff. Like 
like all that, like I guess the Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler made him laugh. So like he would like he called Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler like like played stuff for him. Yeah, I mean this this film, you mentioned it's his opus, it's probably his most personal film as well. This Jewish kid from Cincinnati making this I think you can call this an epic. It's um, an epic. It's it details from it's one the be- of, it's one of the last, I think, true epics that we've gotten. Because it details from the beginning of the war to the end of the war. And you don't see any fighting. You don't see any of the like actual war stuff. You're just following this group. Different of, kind of fighting, though. Different kinds of fighting, but you're following these group of Jews throughout the entire thing. Not the entire film. And I think the nice little touch at the end is them putting stones on Schindler's grave. And, I mean, just it's so good. Just also the arc of Oscar Schindler because at start at the start of the film he's kind of this greedy businessman who does who thinks he this is all beneath him pretty much to even think of the Jews but then he he kind of gets that change of heart and makes it his mission to um, save a lot of people and him and Ben Kingsley are working together and it's a it's a depressing film it's a beautiful film it is. Definitely one of Spielberg's best. Probably not my favorite, just because it's such tough subject matter. It's not like it's not my favorite Spielberg. I just think it's like if we're doing the best Spielberg, I think this is his best movie. Probably, yeah, top to bottom. Um, he won Best Director for this, like I mentioned. Um, a lot of the a lot of the main players were recognized for this, and rightfully so. Um, at uh, at eight, I think that's a good spot for it. I think top ten is fine. For, yeah, like, perfect for this movie. I think this cements Spielberg as one of the greatest directors of all time. I think like, sure. like he done all the action hero stuff. Him doing an emotional drama that's so personal, and then him just knocking it out of the ballpark. Yeah, and um, him and another guy uh, that we'll get to later on this list is Buddy Marty. Both pulled off um, these black and white uh, all timers. Yeah, um, Schindler's List is amazing, and you should all see it if you haven't. Uh, moving on here to number seven, Lawrence of Arabia from 1962. Talk about epics. Um, directed by David Lean, written by Robert Bull and Michael Wilson, based on T.E. Lawrence's autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Stars Peter O'Toole in his first first big role. Not his first role in general, but one of his first um, big roles um, on the screen. Omar Sharif, Sir Alec Guinness, Anthony Quinn, Jack Hawkins. This is Sam Spiegel and and David Lean and um, Sir Alec Guinness and Jack Hawkins and all the crew uh, kind of regrouping after Bridge of the River Kwai yep. a few years before. Um, they wanted to make a film about Gandhi at first, but settled on T.E. Lawrence after Spiegel bought the rights to Lawrence's autobiography. They originally wanted to cast Marlon Brando as the role of Lawrence, um, but he was shooting Mutiny on the Bounty, which was also a nominee for Best Picture that year. Um, but Spiegel went to the theater and was trying to think of people to cast, but and he saw the film The Day They Robbed the Bank of England, which starred Peter O'Toole, and at that point he realized that O'Toole was the guy for the job, and he offered him it, and he accepted it almost immediately. A little more trivia here. Uh, Sir Alec Guinness was made up to look like the re- real Prince Faisal as close as possible. When they were shooting in Jordan, several people who knew the man mistook him for the real thing. Almost all the movement in the movie goes from left to right, Mm-hmm. Um, director uh, Sir David Lean said he did this to emphasize that the movie was a journey. Although it's three hours and 36 minutes long, this movie has no women in speaking roles. It's reportedly the longest movie not to have any dialogue spoken by a woman. During an appearance on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson in the 70s, Peter O'Toole was describing just how long the movie took 
to make by referring to the scene when T.E. Lawrence and, and General Allenby, after their meeting, continued talking while walking down a staircase. According to O'Toole, part of the scene had to be reshot much later. So in the final print, when I got to the bottom of the stairs, I'm a year older than when I was than I was when started walking down them. Uh, just an epic production, um, nominated for ten Oscars, and it won seven. Uh, it won uh, Best Picture. Best Director, Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound, Film Editing, Score. It's also nominated for Peter O'Toole for Best Actor, Omar Sharif for Supporting Actor, and Best Screenplay. The nomination for Wilson, uh, Michael Wilson was granted on uh, September 26, 1995 by the Academy Board of Directors after research at the WGA found that the then-blacklisted writer shared the screenwriting credit with Bolt. Lawrence of Arabia, one of the... All-time epics. Um, 1962 was obviously the year, like we mentioned, that it won Best Picture over the likes of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I just watched this film recently for the first time. And I can say that I'm not a huge fan. Okay. Um, I think that it drags a bit, which I think it's is... super long. Which I think is may be considered blasphemy, considering this this uh, film is so highly regarded. I think... Now, this may be even a, an even worse take, but I think that Peter O'Toole really just kind of took me out of the movie sometimes, because I feel like he was doing a Charlton Heston impression. Um, he kind of felt like he was doing the same thing, doing the same beats as I've seen from Charlton Heston. I know you're shaking your head. Um, and that's just, that's just me. I know I'm in the minority for that. I know that a lot of people, um, say that this is one of the greatest films. I, it didn't really work for me and that's okay. Um, I think there are a lot of really cool things about it. Um, seeing Sir Alec Guinness dressed up like an Arabian pre, uh, prince was a bit odd. Um, it's a time before like they were just, really, I know. yeah, let's do it. No, 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 like, no. It's like, it's definitely of the time. Yeah, no, de- for sure. Um, this film is still epic though. Um, the story is interesting. I have no problems whatsoever with people putting it this high. Um, no, I don't either. I it, it just not really not really my thing. But I understand why people hold this to such a high regard. Let me tell you why. You're, I'm kidding. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Honestly, um, I don't care. The main reason I think this film is so important to me, anyway, sure, is the cinematography. Yes, it is one of the most like there are wides in this movie that are just gorgeous like they're yes. gorgeous like everything yes. about this movie is just gorgeous like you look at it and you go like they shot in the desert they did all these things that you shouldn't do and this is before a time they had playback yeah so if they didn't get something they didn't get it yeah, well yeah that's why he, he uh peter O'Toole mentioned it took him so long just to shoot that one staircase shot well they, they shot that literally shot in the desert for six months yeah there are scenes in this movie where like you can tell that they shot later because peter O'Toole's skin's darker mm. yeah yeah and uh, Sir Al Guinness, I will give them credit. They tried to find someone like um, the real Prince Faisal, but um, none of them could really act the same way as, mm. or could really do the things that they were asking him to do like Sir Al Guinness could. Sure. And I'll give them that kind of credit where it's like, you at least tried to do this. Bruno Tool, who is famous for not winning an Academy Award in his entire lifetime. Yeah. Uh, the reason he... He like, did get an honorary one, I believe. He got an honorary one because he had been in film for like 50 years. Yeah. And then, then he passed away, I believe. Yeah, he was nominated for eight over his lifetime. Yeah, he, he's one of the most iconic actors of all time. 
he it really stinks because he lost to Gregory Peck. He's kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio of his day, where it's like you play you you're going against like people in their best role at the in the like Leo went against McConaughey in Dallas Buyers Club, like you, Jamie Fox for Ray. Um, uh, Last King of Scotland with Forrest Whitaker, those type of films. Like yeah. once in a lifetime performances. Yeah. And I think this film, I could argue top three in my opinion. That's just me. Sure. Um, but David Lean, one of the best directors we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest, like the biggest problem is the brown face. But I think sure. this film, I mean, it drags, but like this film is telling a really broad story. Like they were traveling through the desert, and I think. It being so long is like we want to make sure that you feel like you've actually traveled through the desert with these people. Like sure. when they're struggling for water, you're like, I need some water. I need that. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I I have no qualms whatsoever. I think this film is super important. Um, and like you mentioned, a journey film. I think if I had to pick a David Lean, uh, Sam Spiegel production, I pick. I would prefer Bridge on the River Kwai, personally. Um, but yeah, China. I mean, you're, I mean, you're not like it's a good movie. It's <laughs> yeah. just like this film just like cemented David Lane as one of the best directors working at the moment, and really uh, shot Peter O'Toole to the top. I mean, Peter O'Toole was kind of just a theater actor, minor actor, and this kind of mm-hmm. shot him as like the face of. And then he uh, played Henry the Second a couple times. Yeah, he's uh, he did a famous one of my favorite roles by him is Camelot, mm-hmm. and he I think he plays King Arthur in that. He was one of the, I think he, him, and I don't remember the other person, are the only people nominated for playing the same role twice, because mm-hmm. um, he played Henry II a couple times. But no, um, all super important people in this film. Um, and I will say, even though I was not a huge fan of it, I am i don't regret watching it, obviously. It's super important. I think everybody should watch it. I know, I know... Hearing three and three hours thirty six minutes is a lot to ask it's for. It's a lot. I'm going to go see it uh, Wednesday, which is debuting in theaters again. Mm-hmm. So it's gonna be a long night. Yeah. Um. But no, Lawrence Arabia at seven. Uh, not mad about that. Um. This next film, though, we could uh, have some interesting takes on. All right, number six, a film that, uh, if you adjust for inflation, is still the highest grossing film of all time. We're not adjusting for inflation, though. Let's, <laughs> let's just be real. Um, Gone with the Wind from 1939, directed by Victor Fleming, again, with uh, George Cukor and Sam Wood uncredited, uh, written by Sidney Howard, based on not the novel, not the book, not the short story, but the story of the Old South by Margaret Mitchell. Stars Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, Thomas Mitchell, uh, Olivia de Havilland, um, Leslie Howard. Uh, Thomas Mitchell had a great 1939. Mm. He was in Stagecoach, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Gone with the Wind, all in 1939. Also forgetting another actor, George Reeves is in this movie. George Reeves as well. Um, nominated for 13 Oscars. It won eight plus two honorary awards. Uh, William Cameron Menzies uh, won an honorary award for his outstanding achievement in the use of color for the enhancement of dramatic mood in the production of Gone with the Wind. Vivian Lee won for Best Actress. Hattie McDaniel won for Supporting Actress. She was the first African-American to be nominated for and win an Oscar. Shout out to Kansas for that one. She's from Kansas. She's from the state. Um, Best Director for Victor Fleming, which I feel like he should have shared, but whatever. Um, Sidney Howard won for Best Screenplay. He was the f- became the first posthumous Oscar nominee and winner. 
cinematography, art direction, film editing, and obviously best picture. R.D. Musgrave won a technical achievement award for pioneering in the use of coordinated equipment in the production of Gone with the Wind. If I'm going to be honest, that's a crane. That's what that is. Oh, okay. It's a crane. Okay. It's that I, big. It's that big crane shot with with all this the Civil War. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's a cool shot. It. It's a cool shot. I it's mean, they use shot. crane shots in this movie a lot, and it was something that was brand new. Yeah, that was a really cool shot. Um, also nominated Clark Gable for Best Actor, Olivia De Havilland for Supporting Actress, Sound, Special Effects, and Original Score. Um, let me see here. Inducted the National Film Industry in '89, the inaugural class, David O. Selznick. Famously bought the rights for an unprecedented $50,000 in 1936. Uh, Margaret Mitchell told him adapting it would be impossible, which is part of the reason why they made this four hours long. Uh, it encapsulates 12 years in the life of Scarlett O'Hara. Um, I wanted to read the opening scroll, uh-huh. and I wanted to see what your take was on it. Uh-huh. I'm sure you have an opinion. There was a land of cavaliers in cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and of slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered. A civilization gone with the wind. Graham, go. Do you want a Ken, do you want like a Ken Burns uh, fiddle or something underneath it? Yes. Gets, to make it seem more epic? That's bullshit. That's what that <laughs> is. I love how they said more than a dream remembered. They make it sound like a fairy tale. They make it sound like a fairy tale, but you got to remember, sharecropping was still a thing in 1939. So, of master and slave, still put rel- still around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just like, the, I mean, we're gonna get into it later. If you want to keep doing your trivia, you do okay. your trivia. Let's just sure. let's, let's just cut I'll, through all the I'll, crap and let's get to I'll the. I'll get I'll get through the trivia real quick. At nearly four hours long, it is the longest running of all motion pictures to win the Best Picture Award, the Academy Awards. First color film to win Best Picture at two hours twenty three minutes and thirty two seconds. Vivian Lee's performance in this movie is the longest ever to win an Oscar. Uh, when Gary Cooper turned down the role of Rhett Butler, which is played by Clark Gable, he is passionately against it. He's quoted as saying, Gone with the Wind is going to be the biggest flop in Hollywood history, and I'm just glad it'll be Clark Gable who's falling on his face and not Gary Cooper. Max Steiner was given only three months to compose the music for this film, considering that 1939 was the busiest year of his career, and that year he wrote the music for 12 films. How the hell did he have time? In order to meet the deadline, Steiner sometimes worked for 20 hours straight and took Benzedrine pills to stay awake. With almost three hours of music, Gone with the Wind had the longest film score ever composed up to that time. Jesus Christ. Holy crap. How are you alive, man? I I mean, how are you alive... And he Dumb. didn't. And he didn't even win the Oscar. How the, that's bullshit, man. <laughs> Dude, uh, justice for Max Steiner. Max Steiner. I mean, like that's the only justice I want to have for this movie. <laughs> you don't like Clark Gable? I love Clark Gable. I love. I like the actors in this movie. Yeah, but what it stands for. <laughs> what it stands for. Vivian Lee and every other actor besides Hannah McDaniel and Clark Gable are unlikable. Like that's a they like. Yeah. That's the thing. I like people are like it's so good. I really want like I want to be a, like Scarlett. You're like. Want to be a cold-hearted bitch? Mm. Like, is that what you want to mm. be? Uh, Scarlet should not be a role model. She's like one of the worst. But first off, George Reeves is the first uh, Superman on television. Mm-hmm. Um, famously died uh, mysteriously. Don't know if it was a murder or suicide. Not related to Christopher Reeves, who plays Superman later. But the Superman curse lived on because he got paralyzed, mm-hmm. and then Brandon Routh's careers ended. Andrew Cavill has any kind of lost his role as Superman, so. We kind of like it's. I just want to get that out of the way. Okay. <laughs> the main reason I have so many problems with this movie is because the slaves were happy. 
That's the thing that pisses me off the most. Yeah. This was written in a time where the South was seen as, you should feel bad for the South. They lost the war. They, they're rebuilding. The American troops burn Atlanta and it let them build this kind of counterculture around the South where it's like, we're together in this time period and you know, we're going to build monuments to the people, the fallen soldiers and everything. And, and then we're going to impose Jim Crow's laws because the free, freed slaves should not be more free than we are. Because we had to put up with all of this. Mm-hmm. The fact that this movie comes out, the Ku Klux Klan had been, like, had been brought back because of uh, Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. They have a premiere in Atlanta. Have you seen photos of it? Mm-mm. It is a street full of Confederate flags. The Klan led the parade. Had a McDaniel... Clark Gable famously said, if it's segregated, I'm not going. So they desegregated it. Had protests outside because it was desegregated in Atlanta during this time period. Um, it's just the opening thing where they just show like the whole plantation, like the slaves are like happily working and it just it just it's like blech. Yeah. No, I uh the controversy is tough. Uh, the controversy kind of sticks with this film. And I don't feel bad that she that her farm's going under. I don't feel bad that they like her people around her are leaving her. I don't feel bad that anything has happened to her. I'm glad when Clark Gable leaves her at the end. Well, yeah, I mean, he has the obviously the 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 money line. Frankly, my dear, or when she asked him, "What is what is she gonna do? What where's she gonna go?" Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Um, Shout out to Clark Gable for doing that and Rap Butler. Um, First time Dan was used on, te- on screen in a major motion picture. I figured it would be. Yep. I figured because that was that kind of did take me back when I actually saw it instead of just on the one of those supercuts. I mean, the title itself, you know, Gone with the Wind, is that these people's ways of life were Gone with the Wind, these plantation owners. Like, she's rich. She's rich beyond rich. Like, there's And she's still a gold digger. Yeah. And, the, <laughs> and like, none of the characters are likable. George Reeves' character, who's. Who she's pining after for the entire movie? That's Ashley. Ashley, okay. yeah. I think Ashley. She's pining after him, and he's just like, he's kind of a weakling. He's just like, he doesn't want to be, he wants to fight, but he's like, but like yeah. Clark Gable is like, I'm the sex symbol here. And she keeps pining after him because he has the most land. He has the most slaves. That, that That's a line that's kind of thrown away, but he says something like, it's like, I have the most slaves, I have the most property. I think he says, I have the most property. Which quote unquote means slaves. I that's just the main thing. Like this film, besides like everything else, like technically brilliant. It is one of the best made films of all time. Hannah McDaniel being the first African American woman to win Academy Award till like two thousand. Yeah. I think yeah, Halle Berry would have been the next one, right? Yeah, Halle Berry was the next one. So like the fact that and her also her Academy Award was stolen. Did you know that? Yeah, I think I have. It got that. stolen from her college that she donated it to. Yeah. And the Academy gave her a new one. And she won it for Mammy. She won it for a, playing a half slave. And the NAACP hated her for it for a long time because she was seen as what's wrong with some black culture. But she's like, I wanted to be an actress. The, these are the only roles I'm going to get. Yeah. Her and Mr. Bojangles, Frank Robinson, also got these kind of roles. So, like, it's just kind of, it's really sad. And that she had to sit in the back at the Academy Awards. She had to go all the way up to the front to get her Academy Award. It is one of the saddest stories, and that she's kind of forgotten. She get, kind of gets blacklisted after this. Sure. 
and she's not even on screen a ton, but she definitely makes her presence known in this film. I would say her and Clark Gable are by far the best people in this movie, just like morals and everything. But Clark Gable just tells her like it is. Yeah, Clark Gable is... Uh, I don't know really exactly why Scarlett uh, doesn't really get with Rhett because if if she wants money, Rhett is loaded. Rhett says multiple times that he actually does love her. This film, so I guess just putting it out there, I do like this film. I don't love it. I, I think that um, just kind of on its whole, I think it is a good film. Um, I think that it kind of reminded me of watching two other films um, that had plenty of controversy, uh, Driving Miss Daisy and Green Book. Mm -hmm. um, I think Driving Miss Daisy is a flaming pile of shit that should just be burned and thrown Book. in a trash. I like Green Book. But also you're white, so I understand that. <laughs> That's fair. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. So, so I, I, don't, I don't think um, that Green Book is like this masterpiece. It shouldn't have won Best Picture. I think it just if you were just to flip on Green Book and... And I guess just take it for what it is. I don't think it's a bad film. The script is bad. The script's bad. The fact that they didn't consult any of the family members sure. of Mercer's no, no, no. yeah. characters. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. That they, they basically they came out and said none of this is true. Yeah. No. Hundred percent problematic. I'm not taking. I'm not taking that. Discounting that at all. Um, I guess I can say I can at least get some. Obviously, being a white male probably plays a huge factor, but. Um, I can get some enjoyment out of Green Book. Not my favorite film, but it's yeah. it's okay. It's all it, right. Me, me, it also affects me different because I'm someone who has ancestry African American and sure. to me. I'm a, I look like a white male, but like I kind of just like saw like saw sure. through the bullcrap of this movie. Sure, as yeah. a kid, and it's a it is problematic that it did win Best Picture. I will say that it was such a juggernaut. It couldn't it couldn't not won Best Picture. Sure. I think like this film is one of the biggest films of all time. I think like. We're talking about like Endgame and all this stuff. This was like a blockbuster before we sure. blockbusters were. Yeah, no, I yeah no, I think Gone with the Wind definitely has its merits. Um, I felt like in a way they tried to make slavery more of a background characteristic. They didn't they they addressed it kind of in conversation. Typically, but they never said it was like bad, bad. They That's never they never said it was bad, bad. Hundred percent right. They I think they mentioned darkies at one point. And property, like you mentioned, so there's definitely some racial slurs and tension going on. But it's mostly about woe is us, world's smallest violin, the South loses the Civil War, and how do we rebuild from here? The poor, the poor, you know, the losers of the war. We have to talk about them instead of the winners, yeah. which I, I just, I can't stand. Sure, no, no, no. I and I 100% agree with that. I think that um, this film is kind of marred um, by what it is about and what it is kind of. Well, I guess it really depends on what you think it's about. Because if from one aspect, it's kind of, it's borderline racist. It's about Confederacy. It's about the Civil War in the South. B borderline. Borderline? Maybe not borderline. Um, uh, it is... Well, one of the opening shots is like when they're clanging the bell, it's like two, yeah. two I'm going to use the racial slur, pickaninnies on like a bell swinging. Yeah, no, okay, so it is racist. Um, but on the other hand, it's this epic love story that spans across 10 to 12 years which one side is not very good 
that's fair. I think Vivian Lee's performance. She she is amazing. I'll give sure. her the credit. Like she, I makes think her I own... think she's going a she's dialed up a, a couple times a little too much for me. That's also the thirties. That's I, also I, I, true. I'm gonna give it like it's the thirties. Sure. The, the person who's like the most down to earth is Clark Gable. Yeah. Also, Clark Gable's like I don't give a fuck. Clark Gable, in my opinion, far and away best performance in this movie. I think. Uh, oh yeah, I think Hannah McDaniel's incredible in this movie yeah. as well because. For the time and seeing her be like a three-dimensional black character, especially with the other slaves that are in this movie who are just one-dimensional dumb characters. But she also actually has a personality. Yeah, she's she doesn't take anything. Yeah. She dishes it out equally. She's yeah. funny. She's willing to talk back. She has emotional range. Yeah, she actually like, you understand where she's coming from. And she's also, I think, respected yeah, by, like, by the other white like characters. Of, of all the... People, like black people in this movie, which is really sad to say, because all the slaves in this movie are just dumb. They they played this dumb character, and she's like, yeah. she's the one who's like, like the other white characters, like, Mammy, can you help me, Mammy? Can she's like, you need to go up there and do this and do that. She's like intelligent. That's like, yeah, it's great to see that. Yeah, no, um, Gone with the Wind. Uh, well, how far do you knock it down this list? Because I assume you're gonna knock it down. I'm knocking it down, but I think it's still top. 30. Is this film is important? 100%. It's important. It's a thousand percent important. Like, like this film is important. Like, like the technical achievements that this film did. Like, this one, this is the first color film to win Academy Award. It used so much technicolor film that technicolor had to go out and make new film. Yeah. Like, this film is epic for multiple reasons. Yeah, no. Um, I would probably knock it down a little bit as well. Um, but again, I... I, I, I honestly... It hasn't aged well. That's the biggest thing. It hasn't aged well, and I see the merits, but I also 100% recognize many of its faults. Also, why on earth um, are these death scenes in there? Pa falls off a horse, dies. Bonnie falls off a horse, dies. Sister just faints dead. I'm sorry. That just really took me out of the film. But anyway, that was 30s, I guess. It's the 30s. Uh, <laughs> moving on here to five, that this film... 100% holds up. I love this. You love Singing in the Rain? Awesome. Singing in the Rain. I rewatched it last night. 1952, directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley, Stanley Donan, written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, stars Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds, somehow only nominated for two Oscars for Gene Hagen for Bet uh, Supporting Actress and um, Score. Somehow none of those three got nominated. I don't know how that happened. Um, inducted in the National Film Registry in 89. Best Picture that year. We kind of already addressed it. But Greatest Show on Earth. Boom. High Noon. Moulin Rouge. Ivanhoe. Quiet Man. I, I this, this just blows my mind that this, this did not get recognized more by the Academy. Yep. This film is one of the most delightful, entertaining, and just moments. An hour 45 uh, minutes of bliss ever created yeah, it's one of those it's one of those inside baseball hollywood films a movie about the movies um it's taken with made with such care it really was very hard to pull off a lot of those um song and dance sequences um i said obviously the two most important are most important and most famous ones are the good morning song and then when gene kelly is swinging around that um, light pole and singing in the rain um some trivia here uh, Donald O'Connor admitted that he did not enjoy working with Gene Kelly, which makes me sad, um, since Kelly was somewhat of a tyrant. O'Connor said that for the first several weeks, he was tired of making a mistake and being yelled at by Kelly. 
After they finished the good morning number, Debbie Reynolds had to be carried to her dressing room because she had burst some blood vessels in her feet. Despite her hard work on the good morning number, Gene Kelly ultimately decided to dub the sound of her feet as well as his own, as was the practice at the time. A microphone was hidden in Debbie Reynolds' blouse so her lines could be heard more clearly. During one of the dance numbers, her heartbeat can be heard, mirroring what happens to Lena Lamont in the movie itself. Debbie Reynolds remarked many years later that making this movie and surviving childbirth were the two hardest things she's ever had to do. Um, one of her kids, obviously, Carrie Fisher. Um, R.I.P. 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 to both of them, honestly. Because yeah. um, they both died within the last couple of years. Well, she died of heart. Debbie Reynolds died of heartbreak, mm-hmm. which... Yeah, that's so sad. Um, this film, again, though, is just a blast. Yeah. Um, also, to point this out, another fun fact. Sure. Gene Kelly, one of the greatest dancers of all time. Yes. From the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah. From, <laughs> all right. From the city of Pittsburgh. And was known as the best tap dancer-singer combo of all time. Sure. He performed the title song with a 100-degree fever, collapsed, and then they told him he they messed up a take, so he had to come out and do it again. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. like Gene Kelly is just one of the best performers of all time. One of the best smiles of all time as well. Yeah, one G- of the most charismatic people on screen. Yeah, Gene Kelly was not seen as a nice guy on set. Then offset, I guess, he was supposed to be like really sweet. And yeah, like, he just seemed very driven. I think. Yeah, he just seemed like if it's not done his way, it's not done right. I mean, yeah. he directed this movie, so yeah. like kind of you kind of get where he's coming from. Sure. So um, I, I think of this as the good version of La La Land. Yeah, but it's not, but it's still <laughs> I just of... I just like making fun of La La Land. Yeah. Just just because like I don't know like La La Land is not a bad movie. But like I just I just think it's an easy one to pick on just because uh It's hard to be white people in LA, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just stopping in the middle of the freeway and dancing on top of cars. Anyway, uh, maybe floating in the Griffith Observatory. Um but no, this film is a lot funnier than I remember. It's really funny and also it tackles the point of like like you talked about Sunset Boulevard. People are transitioning to talkies. Yeah. And a lot of them can't make it. Yeah, I mean, that that's really the crux of this film, truly, is just finding, because Lena Lamont, her voice is terrible, and high-pitched and squeaky, and they that's why, part of the reason why they make silent films, because she is an attractive woman, but her voice, they don't ever let her speak because of that, and then Debbie Reynolds has to basically uh, oh, dub her voice, essentially, um, but no, this... Um, Donald O'Connor it, as Cosmo is just has this electric frenetic energy. Um, he's literally running up and down walls and has these incredible just slapstick comedy um, dance numbers. I mean, like, the, like you told me the blood blister thing. I'm like, of course, of course she did. Like, yeah. of course she did. Like watching this film, you're like, how did these people like walk again? Yeah, like, the tap dancing is unreal. The tap dancing, like them jumping up walls, them like. Like there's random points where you just like like they land on a chair like they land on like a rolling chair and you're just like, yeah. How'd your how'd your Achilles not rupture there or something like? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Donald O'Connor mentioned he was running into cement walls and they made him do multiple takes and he, yeah, just kind of beat up. Um, but singing in the rain uh, at number five, I think you got a hell of an argument for best musical of all time. Oh yeah, I think you could definitely say because like it's inside baseball. I think it's big. I think inside making fun of the film industry while doing a film about the film industry is really important. Sure. Because I think this and uh, Sunset Boulevard are two of the best of that. Sure. And I think this, you could definitely say this is a five. Perfect. 
Sure. Yeah, no, have no qualms with this. Uh, Singing in the Rain, just a blast to watch. Really just flies by at um, just under two hours and really just well done. Cross across the board. Yeah, and then getting into the next film, which is the opposite of that. Oh, boy. Um, well, I mean, I'm talking about like it's an easy watch. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, I mean, I I'm, not, I'm not downgrading. I was going to say, I'm like, are, are we hating already? What's no, going no, on? No, no, no. Okay, anyway, moving on to number four is Raging Bull from 1980, directed by Marty Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader and Marty Martin, based on the autobiography by Jake LaMotta, stars Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Kathy Moriarty, nominated for eight Oscars, won two. Uh, this was famously the year that Ordinary People, with Robert Redford, Donald Sutherland, um, beat Raging Bull for Best Picture. Uh, Ordinary People won that year, Coal Miner's Daughter, Raging Bull, Tess, and The Elephant Man. Uh, ordinary People, Graham, I assume you've seen it. It's a good movie. Eh, I don't know if I even go that far, honestly. It's okay. I mean, it's a good, it's a good movie that doesn't deserve to be the... It's so safe. Yeah, it's a safe pick for them. It's like, so safe. I will say that, like... Judd Hirsch, incredible in the film. Judd Hirsch and, um... Who's the mom? Uh, Mary Tyler Moore. Which I'm more, I think those, I think those are two great performances. Don't, sure. so I mean, like the performances are good. Yeah, but, but, like, but I mean, like this movie is just like Raging Bull, all time classic. Ordinary people, yeah, it's all right. You know, Robert Redford got his only Academy Award for it. Like, I, I'm not complaining about that. No, that's a good thing. Like, that it's, a, it's a good thing, but, but, but Marty is. I mean, Marty Scorsese. <laughs> no, Marty should have. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Anyway, but um, I mean, that's like two things we were just talking about. Like, Robert Redford deserved like multiple Academy Awards in his lifetime, but for other films, for other films, and then Scorsese deserves multiple Best Director nominate wins for this. Yeah, um, or just in general. Um, one for uh, two. Uh, Robert De Niro won his second Oscar, uh, Best Actor. And uh, editing uh, Thelma Shoemaker, who has edited all of Scorsese's films, or at least most of them, if I remember right. Um, Some of the best editing ever in Mm -hmm. this film, by the way. Um, Nominated for Best Picture, uh, Joe Pesci for Supporting Actor. He'd later win for Goodfellas. Um, Kathy Moriarty, Supporting Actress, Director for Marty, Cinematography, and Best Sound. (laughs) How the hell does that one Best Cinematography? I I don't know. Inducted (laughs) in National Film Industry in in 1990. this was one. This was the first of three films that De Niro, Pesci, and Frank Vincent, um, who plays Salvi in this film, uh, that they'd be in together with Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas, and Casino, the other two. Um, some trivia here real quick. In 1978, when Martin Scorsese was in an all-time low due to a near overdose resulting from addiction to cocaine, De Niro visited him at the hospital and told him that he had to clean himself up and make this movie about a boxer. At first, Scorsese refused. He didn't like sports movies. But due to De Niro's persistence, he eventually gave in many claim, including Mar- Marty himself, that De Niro saved Scorsese's life by getting him back into work. That's pretty awesome. Um, the reasons why this film was made in black and white were mainly to differentiate from Rocky in 76, as well as for period authenticity. Another reason was that Marty didn't want to s- depict all that blood in a color picture. Also in the book... Jake LaMotta says, now, sometimes at night when I think back, I feel like I'm looking at an old black and white movie of myself. Why it should be black and white, I don't know, but it is. In preparation for this role, Robert De Niro went through extensive physical training entered in, that entered him in three genuine Brooklyn boxing matches, and he won two of them. Um, De Niro and Pesci are really punching each other in that famous hit me scene near the beginning. Uh, Scorsese taught Spike Lee film directing at NYU. Spike's first movie, She's Gotta Have It, in 86. It was filmed entirely in black and white, except for one scene in color. But, um, so yeah, with that out of the way, 
this film is, for lack of a better term, like a gut punch. It's a good movie. It's a very, 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 very good movie. I feel a butt coming. But. Yeah. I put good films above it. Oh, pure enjoyment-wise, 100%. Like, De Niro in this movie. Jesus. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is his dominance from the late seven, from the 70s to the 80s. This is the last, I think, the last time Scorsese had to do, like, a kind of grimy kind of picture. Kind of mm. Like, this film feels very, like, that grit of the 70s New York. I think this is the last time he had to do that. Sure, yeah. Like, this film blows my mind. That Like, I watched this last night just to kind of re- refresh my memory of it. Yeah. No, it's uh, it, it definitely is a film that stick with you. Again, it's another one that I, I know he said the reasoning for why he did it, but... His um his choice to shoot in black and white was so it's brilliant is is brilliant truly, and the cinematography like you mentioned I don't know how it didn't win for best cinematography because it's iconic like, this this film is shot beautifully um the boxing scenes are incredible um, Thelma Shoemaker edited this to perfection I think or as close to it as you can be you always you always have a sense of what's going on and just those fights between him and Sugar Ray are just so. I don't know, so poignant and so, like, I guess they just really feel it in your soul, the that, pain that they're going through. That last fight is just, like, brutal as all hell. Like, cause he never he, got me down, Ray. He, like, he knows that he's going to lose. Like, he's like, I'm too far behind. Knocking, I'm too tired. I can't knock him out. So he's like, I'm going to let you wail on me. And if I fall down, I fall down. I've never fallen down in my career. You never knocked me down, Ray. You never knocked me down. And, I mean, the scene where he gets punched that last time, the blood sprays across the... The front, and they're like, "Oh Jesus!" Like, that's real boxing. That's yeah. like that was what boxing like. Like their pads, like their gloves aren't that thick. So I mean, like that was that would have hurt like all hell. Yeah. And like you feel like, and his eyes are all swollen, and you can just tell like, he never knocked me down. Like, like that's respect. Like, like I, you could beat the shit out of me, but you can never knock me down. And that also plays into how much of an ego ego uh egotistical uh jerk off that Jake Lamotta was. Yeah. You they, also see um a lot, a lot of similarities to what Scorsese and De Niro would do in Casino. Yeah, you see that yeah, because flew too close to the sun basically. Because I think I think Sam and Sam and Jake Lamotta are very similar characters. Also like respect. um have you seen the fighter with yes. Christian Bit? Mm-hmm. Very similar like mm-hmm. Ducky and him are very similar. Sure. Like by Sugar Ray, he fought another Sugar Ray in that yeah. movie. It never knocked me down. Like, like, like that same line set. Yeah, and um, also, I mean, uh, on the waterfront, that's, I mean, he's that thing at the end is kind of like parallel, where it's like, sure. I mean, when he's old and fat, when you can tell that he, also, which is how they start the movie. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that just kind of blows my mind, like, De Niro is a method actor. But he never went full method except for, the, like, full, full method except for this. Well, he kind of had to. He had to. He, like, he said he entered boxing matches. And then he just, like, they took a month off and he just ate himself to the point where he is, he looks like he does. I mean, the makeup on this is really cool. It's really amazing because, mm-hmm. like, they gave him the broken nose. They gave him, like, it looks like, it looks like a Beluga. I mean, he sure. looks like a Palooka. He just yeah. looks like that kind of guy. And, I mean, he's really just this uh, masochistic, uh, He's an wife, asshole. Wife beater. Yeah. No. He he really is a he really is a douche canoe. Um, in this in this film. I mean, like you, you like the character study into Jake Lamada 
Lamada just like recently died. He did 2018. Like he didn't die that long ago. Yeah. So like the fact that like I was like, oh, they did this after he died. I looked it up and like he died in 2018. I'm like, oh shit. No, he was a consultant on this film. 100%. And, like, Lamada later in life said that he really regrets everything he did when he was a kid. He regrets a lot of the stuff that he did. Yeah. But at the same time, he said, I have no regrets what I did in the ring. He said, outside the ring, like, him beating up his brother. That entire scene is just, like, it's like, oh, oh okay, that's happening. All right, okay. Yeah. This, I mean, this, this is really one of those, like you mentioned, oh, wow, okay, they're really going for it. And I really think that that helps a lot that this does feel authentic. Um, kind of that scene near the beginning where he having he's having his brother just punch him in the face. I mean, it's it's just visceral reaction after visceral reaction of just how how much of a violent life in and out of the ring that Jake Lamotta lived. I mean, like the scene where he he first like meets up with Vicky and like they have the first intimate moment. Kiss my bruises. Like he likes the pain. Like yeah. he's a like I mean like. The thing is, is like Lamada was known as a fighter that just would never back down. Like he never backed up. Yeah, he never. But he was one of those guys who would full front. Like you can beat me up this way, I'm, but I'm driving you this way. But he also he always held it over him that he said even even when he was supposed to throw that fight, he didn't go down because that's not what Jake Lamada does. Um, not not what the Raging Bull does. Um, and I think Raging Bull is such an apt title for this film. As well, because that's really what he was in and out of the ring. I mean, he's he's a bull in the china shop. Sure, outside of the ring, he's a breaking bull inside the ring because he can be. He can be what he's supposed to be in outside the ring. And the thing is, it's kind of weird. I think you know you could just pro- project him as this asshole person outside the ring. Yeah, but they shows like real moments where he's just like he shows genuine love for his wife. Yeah, he shows genuine love for his kids. He shows like that he absolutely loves his brother. He loves. Like, he loves all that. But he's also just super paranoid because he becomes a champ. And all of a sudden, all this stuff starts happening. And people are, are making fun of him and all this stuff. And he's just like... And then he's paranoid because his wife is extremely beautiful and hangs around with Salvia all the time. And she, he's just afraid that he's going to lose her. Yeah, which, I mean, she threatens to leave multiple times, eventually does. Um hard hard to watch in that respect but that's also what his life was it was hard to watch and i think that I mean, he knocks her out on one yeah. point the fight where he he like cuz she said that she fucked joey which mm-hmm. is it was a joke like she's just like it's like i've i mess with everybody i do that all the time like mm-hmm. and it was just like she's just saying that just to piss him off yeah she didn't mean it and then he just goes like blood red hits her full, with the left hook yeah just knocks her out yeah um uh, I, like you mentioned, uh, not my favorite. I would say this is number three Scorsese for me. I'd okay. put Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, would how I would do it, and then I put probably Gangs of New York at four. Um, how would you? How would you rank it? I rank it. I'd rank this. See, uh, Goodfellas, ta- Goodfellas, The Aviators are my favorites. Mm, I would. I'm not a huge fan of that one. I, I just like it because it's just sure. for me. Sure, like, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I say Goodfellas, Taxi Driver. Um, I, I'll have to put this at number three, and then maybe The Departed and Departed, The Aviator. Departed's really good too. Yeah, like like people was like, oh, he kind of they kind of handed they handed it to him, but he still still made an amazing movie. Yeah, that, that's definitely one of those like makeup Oscars for the film. They're like. 
Yeah, that film was really good. I mean, like, yeah, Scent of a Woman, is that really Al Pacino's best film? But, like, Departed's like, that's a pretty no, good we, film. We can say, say that Scent of a Woman is not Pacino's best <laughs> film. A thousand percent. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, Raging Bullet 4. Uh, I mean, it, I think it belongs. I think I put Goodfellas in the top 10. Okay. But top 15, I'll be like, yeah, this movie's incredible. But, no, this film, definitely one of the best films of the 80s. Uh, one of the most... Uh, one of Scorsese's best, like I mentioned, uh, really just great top to bottom. Uh, number three, another film that's great top to bottom is Casablanca. Played again, Sam. <laughs> from 1942, We'll Always Have Paris. Um, directed <laughs> by Michael Curtiz, written by Julian J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch. Uh, stars Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Henrold, Claude Rains, and Peter Lorre. Nominated for eight Oscars, and it won three. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Screenplay. This is nominated for Best... Sorry. What's the sigh for? Humphrey Bogart again. Oh, oh, yes. Um, nominated for Best Actor, Humphrey Bogart, Claude Rains for Supporting Actor, Cinematography, Film Editing, and Score by Max Steiner. Um, he's Jeez. got our boys back. Man, he... He, he, Killing it. he needed to get one. Okay, I'm sorry. I need to look this up. Did he actually ever win an Oscar? I think Oscar? he did. I believe he did. Um, I'll look it up while you're doing uh, Best Picture, Casablanca won that year, and a bunch of other random films like From the Bell Tolls and all that. But anyway, regardless, the real deal is Casablanca won. Inducted in, in the inaugural class of National Film Registry in 89. Um, some, he won three Oscars. Okay, yeah, he won three. So that's he, won, good. he won four... Uh, Battle Cry. So he won four and nominees. Dang, he was nominated for a bunch. Uh, Since You Went Away, he won that one. He won Now Voyager and The Informer. None of the most iconic ones that he's had, but. Well, at least he did get some recognition. But anyway, um, some trivia with this one. In the 80s, this film script was sent to readers in a ma number of major studios and production companies under its original title, Everybody Comes to Rick's. Some readers recognized the script, but most did not. Many complained that the script was not good enough to make a decent movie. Others gave such complaints as too dated, too much dialogue, and not enough sex. Um, when this film won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Jack Warner was first on stage to accept the award, beating the film's actual producer, Hal B. Wallace, who was incensed at this slight and never forgave Warner. Wallace at the time, regarded as the wonderkind of the studio, left Warner Brothers shortly afterwards. Um, this one is the most egregious to me. Back in the early to mid-2000s, Madonna wanted to remake Casablanca with her, her playing Ilsa Lund and Ashton Kutcher in the role of Rick Blaine. Madonna pitched the idea... Um, to every studio, but was unanimously rejected by every every studio with one studio exec telling her the film is deemed untouchable, which it is. The project has since been scrapped by Madonna, thankfully. Because the film was made during World War II, the production was not allowed to film at an airport after dark for security reasons. Instead, they used a soundstage with a small cardboard cutout airplane at forced perspective to give the illusion that the plane was full size. They used little people to portray the crew preparing the plane for takeoff. Same technique was used in Alien um, years later. Uh, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were accused of having an affair, although they rarely talked off screen. And because they weren't of, friends. And because of that, they rarely talked after the film. Anyway, but their chemistry on screen, incredible. This yeah. film, incredible. You you don't seem as high. No, on I love Casablanca. It's, okay. a, it's a great movie. <clears throat> I just was like, and just like the Madonna thing, kind of just like threw me for a loop. Yeah, no, I didn't know that either. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a train wreck. Most Madonna things are train wrecks after like Oof. the 80s. Oof. 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, Casablanca is insane. It's one of the best films ever made. It's. I don't think it's. I think no film's untouchable. I think. That yeah, that's fair. I think yeah. no film's untouchable. I think, especially back in like the eighties and early two thousands, Ashton Kutcher. Why? <laughs> yeah. Like. Like I can see this movie being made today. That would have that would have felt like a parody. I can see this be- film being made today by like sure. Denis Villeneuve or somebody, mm. someone who actually has like a good artistic touch to it and would have done like justice. But yeah, like, basically anybody but Madonna and Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, like it's just like I can see this movie being made today. Sure. With like a more adult film, like more of like more sex, more of that kind of stuff. You could like, even make a film like this and even put it in a different location as well, even outside yeah. of Morocco, like. Um, but no, uh, iconic Humphrey Bogart, iconic Ingrid Bergman, Claude Rains, fantastic, Peter Lorre, fantastic. Peter Lorre, the basis for Ren, for Ren and Stimpy. Did, really? you, did you know no, that? No, I did not know that. The voices that. are almost the exact same. Oh, that's incredible. Peter Lorre also is a very good producer. He's done a lot of, did a lot of stuff in the 40s and 50s. Um, but yeah, no, this film... This film is great. It's kind of a uh, like a, a seedy underground um, kind of got kind of got one of those underground crime ring kind of feels to it. Yeah. Um. It's a it's a love story. Um. Kind of these, I guess, star-crossed lovers. They kind of meet back up, but there's obviously been years apart. And there's a lot. There's a history there that they go back into. Um. Back in Paris, Humphrey Bogart as Rick is just incredible. It's kind of he's caught in between. Um, this uh, kind of Casablanca and his club or bar, I guess, is kind of this safe haven during World War II. Uh, and then all of a sudden the war is brought to his front doorstep and he's kind of stuck in the middle of it. And the the drama and tension that that brings is uh, just, just really interesting. And just, I think this is one of those films from the 40s that holds up. It's one of those films that is still entertaining uh, great performances top to bottom. Really, I, I can't think of any major problems I have with this film. I mean, Sam, I mean, Sam's just the piano player. That's the only thing I have with them. I'm just like, oh, yeah. Sam, I want to hear more about you. Because, like, it seems like he still has a history with Rick, and I was like, yeah, hear more about that. That could have been, like, a spinoff, like Rick and Sam. Yeah, I mean, this movie is just so good. Yeah. Um, uh, Ingrid Bergman, incredible in this movie. I, I believe... Is this the first time we've talked about her? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart and her were kind of seeing, like, they did some movies together, I believe. Ingrid Bergman uh, did a lot in around this time. Okay. She's, she's definitely um, she's definitely an important figure. Yeah, Peter Lorre, and um, this is released in 42. This is released December 1942. It premiered that year, but it was wide released in 43. That's why it's up for the 44 Academy mm. Awards. Okay, I was wondering about that. Yeah, so I think it's not Bogey's best performance. Sure. But I think it's like one of, maybe his most iconic. I would probably, ha- has to be his most iconic. Also, I don't think an actor had back-to-back years that were just as good as him. Like, like he did he did Maltese Falcon, then, then this. Yeah. Like, Maltese Falcon launched him to superstardom. This kind of just is like cemented him as one of the greatest actors working. Sure. Um, yeah, no, Humphrey Bogart was really just at the top of his game when this came out. Um, another line I forgot to mention, uh, here's looking at you, kid. Uh, looking at you, kid. Um, one of the most iconic lines. You get on the plane, not, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, uh-huh. but you regret it someday. Yeah. Um, Casablanca is one of those films that, like, 
a lot of film purists put at the top of these lists and may may seem like a pretentious pick, but also... It's not, it's not as pretentious as number one. Well, okay, we'll get to that. But um, <laughs> Casablanca... It still holds up. It's, it's just good. This it's just good stuff. This movie's nearly 80 years old. It still holds up. Yeah. I think... I'm not mad at three. No. The only thing I have is, like, the, the plane. You can definitely tell, like, it's, like, a model at the end. You're just, like... You're like I also... You know what? 42. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um, go see Casablanca if you haven't seen it. Um, number two, The Godfather from 1972. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and a bunch of other great... Diane Keaton. <laughs> um, I mean, John Cazale. Uh, anyway, um, nominated for 11 Oscars, won three. How's this not... <laughs> How's like, it not... Like, uh, um, it won Best Picture. Uh, Marlon Brando won his second Academy Award. Obviously, he was protesting the, the uh, ceremony, which we mentioned before. Um, it also won screenplay for Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. Nominees for this film were James Caan as Sonny for a supporting actor, Rob Duvall as Tom for a supporting actor, Al Pacino, obviously we mentioned it before, protested these Academy Awards because he felt like he should have been nominated for Best Actor and not Supporting Actor because he actually has more screen time than Marlon Brando. I think he has a point there, but anyway. He does. Coppola, Best Directors, Costume Design, Sound, Editing, and Score. That score is great. Oh my god, how do you um, have the best score? I think this is this has an argument for the most rewatchable film ever made. Best uh, picture. No? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 Oh, um, no, like um Best Picture that year we mentioned before, real quick, Godfather One, Cabaret, Deliverance, Sound or the Immigrants, inducted the National Film Registry in night in nineteen ninety. Uh, some trivia. You mentioned this one before, but I wanted to re-shout re it out real quick. During an early shot of the scene where Vito Corleone returns home and his people carry him up the stairs, Marlon Brando put weights under his body on the bed as a prank to make it harder to lift him. Uh, he made him. He wanted to make Don Corleone look like a bulldog, so he stuffed cheeks with he stuffed his cheeks with cotton wool for the audition. And then in the actual filming, he wore a mouthpiece made by a dentist. Um, animal rights activists protested the horse's head scene when they leave the horse's head in the bed. That famous shot. Um, Francis Ford Coppola later told Variety, there were many people killed in that movie, but everyone worries about the horse. It was the same on the set. When the head arrived, it upset many crew members who are animal lovers, who like little doggies. What they don't know is that we got the head from a pet food manufacturer who slaughters 200 horses a day just to feed those little doggies. Anyway, Orson Welles lobbied to get the part of Don Vito Corleone, which I did not know, even offering to lose a good deal of weight in order to get the role. Coppola, a Welles fan, had to turn him down because he already had Brando in mind for the role and felt Welles would be right for it. The line, I gotta make, I'm gotta, i going to make him an offer he can't refuse, was selected by the AFI on its list as one of the top 100 movie quotes. It's at number two, right behind, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, from God with the Wind. Not I am your father. What the hell? Well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Anyway, Godfather, not many mistakes in this one. Also, shout out that uh, the famous uh, montage sequence, The Baptism, one of the greatest sequences in film history. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of greatest in yeah, film well, history with this with this gun, movie. Leave the gun, grab the cannoli. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Jeez. It's, just... it's, I mean, there, there's, just, there's just so much greatness in this film. Uh, Sonny at the Toll Booth. Um, when Don Vito gets shot um, walking out of the store, I mean, when he slaps Johnny Fontaine, <laughs> I mean, there's just so many, when James Caan just goes off, hits the dude with the trash can lid, I mean, there are just so many iconic moments 
in this film. I, I, I'm holding my hand like this because I feel like it's appropriate when talking it's about a, this movie. It's appropriate. Uh, when I mean, when uh, uh, Michael goes to Italy. I mean, there's just there's just a lot going on in this film. There's a lot of moving pieces, but you're never lost. No. Um, at three hours, it doesn't drag. No, um, it doesn't feel like it's three hours. It doesn't. It really goes by quickly. I have mentioned before, but I prefer this one to the second one, even though the sequel is fantastic in its own right. Um, and I think it's under, and I also think it's underrated on this list, like I've mentioned. Um, Godfather, I think you could put this at number one. I have no issues with that at all. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing I have a problem with this is Pacino should have won best leading, Brandon should have won best supporting. Yeah. Because Pacino is insane in this movie. This is his yeah. first big role. I, I think people forget that. Pacino was kind of just a TV actor. This, this was this was before Dog Day Afternoon, before Serpico, um, before a lot of his iconic roles in the seventies. I think Panic at Needle Park might have been before, but that's not an iconic role. But for like him. this is him. This is him like establishing himself as the next generation's big lead before De Niro kind of came along in this yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, no, just a lot of. Uh, I mean, Pacino's great. Um, Diane Keaton is also good in this film. Um, just, just, just so much good things. One of the best mob movies ever made. Um, this. What do you mean one of the best? It is the best. Uh, well, I mean, listen, personal enjoyment. I will always go Goodfellas, but Godfather is probably a better made film. I would say. It, at, again, I, I believe on the original list in 97, this was number one, um, but it was surpassed by our next film um, in the 2007 updated version. If they did a 2019 updated version, I I would bet money they'd probably put this at number one. Yeah, I think... Yeah, this film's just so good. Like, yeah. For Coppola, Francis For Coppola was one of the... Uh, College brats. He was a film school kid. Like yeah. he's part of the group with Scorsese, Spielberg, George Lucas, Brian De Palma. Yeah, he's yeah. part of that little group. And so this was his film. This is his big film into all this, and this becomes one of the most all-time classic films ever. Sure. And I, I it's really, it's really hard to find something new on this film because it's been discussed so many times. Yeah, like, you watch this film, I pick up certain things every time. Like, also, with the fact that, like, it feels like you're watching, you know, like, those old reels from the 50s, like, your grandparents would put that, and it's just like, why, is, why are the kids doing this? Why are the kids doing that? You see that in this movie, like, like the wedding scene. Like it this. starts with the wedding. That's another thing. If you want to make a great film, put a wedding in it. Yeah. But, like, the wedding in the beginning is, like, it feels very... Of, like, that 40s, 50s period where, like, you just see random stuff that you wouldn't see anyplace else kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like, you know, like, kids playing, like, kids dancing on people's shoes, that kind of thing. Where it feels very, it feels grounded in this reality. It's also very Italian. Very Italian. <laughs> um, also, a uh, great parody in uh, Zootopia. Yes. But anyway, um, just, uh, just a quick I mean, thing there. Um, I, think we, I think we are in agreement. This is number one. Yeah. No, no, no. This is number one. Although... I appreciate the number one film. I appreciate it. I definitely appreciate it. I just like uh, when this was nominated when this was number one. I'm just kind of like, eh. all right, it's very pretentious. Well, okay, let's get into it. Number one, the top film according to the American Film Institute is Citizen Kane from 1941, directed by Orson Welles, written by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles, 
stars Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton, Dorothy Cominor, nominated for nine Oscars and only won one for Best Screenplay for Mankiewicz and Orson Welles. Um, on Friday, uh, July 19th, 2003, Orson Welles' Oscar statuette went on sale at an auction at Christie's, New York, but was voluntarily withdrawn so the Academy could buy it back for just $1. The statuette, including a large selection of Welles-related material, was going to be sold by Beatrice Welles, the youngest of the filmmakers, three daughters, and sold heir, sole heir of his estate and was expected to sell at over $300,000. That's kind of weird. Hmm. Um, anyway, nominated also for Best Picture, Orson for Best Actor, Best Director, Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound, Film Editing by Robert Wise, and Score, Bernard Herrmann. Uh, inducted in the National Film, Regist Film Registry in 89. Obviously, we've talked about it before. Lost to High Green North My Valley for Best Pick. Uh, journalism Film. Thumbs up there. Uh, <laughs> like, I <have> journalism. Yeah. <laughs> like, journalism. <laughs> uh, Joseph Cotton and Wells were also in a much better film, The Third Man. Ooh, take a chat. I like uh, Carol Reed. Um, what is that? I, am I wrong there, though? You may not be, but... I, I Listen, so I just want to get this out of the way. Citizen Kane is a great film. It's iconic. It's one of the most iconic films ever. It is, and I think that I can see the argument for putting this in number one. Um, but anyway, we'll get, we'll get to that in a second. Um, like you mentioned, or at least alluded to, it changed cinematography and screenwriting forever. Um, depth of field was basically created in this film. The amount of dolly shots and angles. And yeah, really just, um, I mean, everybody points to that shot in the kitchen with him playing outside in the snow. and The, 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 dolly, the dolly in. Or, yeah. Um, just, yeah. Yeah, just iconic there. Um, some uh, fun facts. Uh, despite all the publicity, the film was a box office flop and was quickly consigned to the RKO vaults. At 1941's Academy Awards, the film was booed every time one of its nine nominations was announced. It was only re-released to the public in the mid-50s. The film's opening, just the title, No Star Names, was almost unprecedented in 1941. It is now the industry norm for Hollywood blockbusters. The camera looks up at Charles Foster Kane and his best friend Jedediah Leland and down at weaker characters weaker characters like Susan Alexander Kane. This was a technique that Orson Welles borrowed from John Ford, who had used it two years previously on Stagecoach. Welles privately watched Stagecoach about 40 times while making this film. The audience that watches Kane make his speech is, in fact, a still photo. Um, to give the illusion of movement, hundreds of holes were pricked in with a pin, and lights moved about behind it. Orson Welles, this is one of the craziest feats ever, yep. was just 25 when he directed, co-wrote, starred in, and produced this. It was his very first feature film, something that will probably never be matched on this level. Um, I mean, guys like John Singleton for Boys in the Hood and others have, have maybe come close, but not quite on this level of, mm -hmm. I guess, acclaim. Um, Orson Welles tried to buy out the screen credit of co-writer Herman J. Mankiewicz. Wells actually paid him several thousand dollars. However, the WGA got wind of this and said it was not permitted. When Wells tried to get his money back, Mankiewicz already spent it. Um, good for him because yeah. that's kind of a dirt. That's kind of a dirty move. Um, Citizen Kane, though, uh, great film, I would say. Um, kind of stupid in one respect of what Rosebud actually is. It's a damn sled. It's a sled. Yep. That's kind of underwhelming. I'm gonna be honest, but I think that's kind of the point of it all. It is. It's it's a, it's nostalgia. You like Rosebud, so people immediately think it's a it's a girl. Yeah. So they go, "Who's Rosebud?" And then they're like, 
It's an estate he had. And it kind of, like, that use of a, that kind of plot device is just iconic. It's just like, this is the first film to really do that. You don't see it from Kane's perspective. You see it from people's retellings of Kane. So you really don't know. And Jedediah a lot as well. Yeah, like, you don't know who he really was. You you see snippets of it from people, from other people's perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that's the cool thing about this movie. Yeah. There's also a lot of um, nonlinear storytelling, which was a, a huge aspect of this. Joseph Cotton is incredible as Jedediah, um, kind of working alongside him. Another important aspect of this, William Randolph Hearst hated this. Well, it's because he... Because ba- he kind of based Charles Foster Wells Keen on did. him. And William... <laughs> Uh, Randolph Hearst uh, wanted to label uh, Wells as a communist and tried to not get this film made because he was kind of uh, dragging his well, name through the mud. If that's you why I got booed too. Yeah, I mean, like he he had he had so much money in people's pockets that they were on his side. Sure, that's why this became a flop too. Yeah, because they would he refused to have this advertised in his paper, and he he sent he just had yellow journalists say stuff bad stuff about it. Yeah, I mean Hearst. One of the most horrible people of all time, William <laughs> Randolph Hearst is not was not a good person, yeah. but he really was Orson Welles. But he also Orson Welles is one of the most important people in cinematic history, though. He is, I will and he made some great films. And also that that um uh, third man shot, third man is really good, and um, Citizen Kane is also really good. Touch of Evil is really good. Like, Orson Welles made a lot of really the good films. The fact that uh, this is the only Orson Welles film on this list. Yes. It, how is Touch of Evil not on this list? I would I would say Touch of Evil, at least for my personal enjoyment, is is more enjoyable to me. I think Citizen Kane is important because at the time, he was doing stuff that no one else was doing. Oh, this, this is one of the most important films ever made. Like, I don't think it deserves to be number one. I think top ten is a good spot for it. it. has to be top ten. It has to be top ten. But I think, like, Touch of Evil... And Third Man. Third Man's a British film, though. Damn it! That's why. That's why it's not on this list. Damn it! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tough. Because uh, that, that film, I know, I know multiple people that say that's a that's a top ten film for them. Which I mean, it's really good. It's really and good. Orson Welles is, just has a small on screen part in that film. Go see Third Man if you haven't. It's on Netflix right now, um, and it's kind of gotten a resurgence. I think over the last couple of years, people are rediscovering it. But no, um, Citizen Kane, again, iconic movie. A lot of iconic shots in this movie. Um, I mean, they, they literally drilled a hole in the floor for some for dolly shots. Because like, there's a scene where um, it's like a really famous shot of him them like looking directly up at him. Like basically, it's like a crotch shot, basically. Like, mm-hmm. right, like, it's literally right below him at his feet. It's looking up to him. And they had to develop, they literally had to put a hole in the floor and crane up to his face. Yeah. This film's iconic. Um, I would not put it in number one. I would move it down into the top ten. But again, I think kind of the theme here, and kind of more why I did more research for this top ten, is that all ten of these films, with maybe the exception of Vertigo, are films that everyone needs to see. They all, I think, changed the cinematic landscape to some respect. I think they all changed the cinematic landscape. You could, like, if you're, I'm being brutally honest, you can skip Gone with the Wind and Vertigo. I, Gone with the Wind, though, still changed the game, I will say. You don't need, but you don't need to see it. 
You don't. You I get. I guess okay. I guess you don't need to see it. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, as far as like its legacy, yeah, like, for lack of a better like term, these films are like the ones that you talk about, like impact. Besides Vertigo, I mean, Vertigo seems Vertigo kind of, really is kind of the odd man out here. Yeah, it's the third man. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just like this really weird film that just like like classic, 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 classic Vertigo. Like, yeah, no, yeah, I get that. Like, even with Psycho, I don't think we're having this discussion. Or really any other Hitchcock film. Yeah, North by Northwest. Any other film on this list, I would say, of the other three. Yeah, like, like we're talking about the most important film, I think one of the most important films ever made in the Schindler's List. One of the best made musicals of all time, Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. One of the best films, period, ever made, which is Lawrence of Arabia. One, one of, of the, the best noirs, Casablanca. Casablanca. One of the best... Just, um, one of the best scripts put the screen, and Godfather best acting performances in the Godfather. I mean, there's like, and Gone with the Wind, and then Raging Bull, Raging Bull, <laughs> cinematography, cinematography, Raging Bull, just pop culture for Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. special effects for Wizard of Oz. Like this, this top ten is so important. Sure, this top ten, we we don't have modern cinema without this top 10 <laughs> really no, that, we that's, don't. that's really just the best way to put it i think but as we kind of get to the end here that's the 100 it's kind of sad it's kind of it's bittersweet yeah um this has been an interesting um exercise um it has exposed me to a lot of films that i should have seen by now and now i can say that i have seen all 100 of these films at one point in my life, um, some that I maybe regret seeing. <laughs> Intolerance, Nashville. Um, but uh, yeah, there's some duds. But um, no, I don't. I, I think that the AFI, the AFI Top 100 is a good starting point um, for people that uh, want to see the classics, if you will, air quotes there. Um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of really good films. I, we, we've given the AFI a lot of crap. But they got a lot right as far as just even film selection. Maybe not placing, yeah. but for as far as film selection, they got a lot of it right, I think. Yeah. And I think we we may get into this on another episode, but uh, this was this was a lot of fun. I think we just need to leave this behind for a little bit. I think yeah. we just need to let this marinate and yeah. look at with our own list. But I think you know, it's been quite a journey. I mean, I'm glad that I came up to you and told you I wanted to do this. Yeah, no, this has been good. It's been really fun. Yeah, it's been good. Um, for now... Signing off for Ins and Outs for Graham Cannon. I'm Braden Shaw. We'll see you next time. Jones. Yeah.